0: Welcome to the NOVA Podcast. Hello and welcome to the NOVA Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Counts. You might know me as your program annotator and humble pre-concert lecturer, though the concerts will be live this new NOVA season. The pre-concert lectures won't be. So I hope that these brief digital glimpses into the history of the music will serve as a guide for your listening experience at the concerts. So whether you're listening a few days out from home or a few miles out in your car on your way to the hall, welcome. Let's start with Beethoven. When you hear the phrase late quartets, it's kind of like London symphonies or cello suites or Brandenburg Concerti. It's a grouping of works that is popular enough, important enough, lasting enough, that it has reached a mythical status in the art form. Certainly with the late quartets of Beethoven, he had, in his post-symphonic days, begun an exploration of some very interesting and very, I think, personal music. He was, at this point, you have to imagine, two years before his death, in his mid-50s. We're talking about the years of 1825, 1826, and if we could zoom in on Beethoven the man during these years, we would have found him, well, not only fully deaf, he hadn't heard a sound in many years at this point, he was disheveled enough that he was arrested once as a vagrant in 1825. The matter was cleared up fairly quickly, but that tells you a lot about the kind of physical image he was striking in those days. He was also rather ill. He had gone through a bout of sickness that was serious enough that his doctor felt compelled to advise him against certain foods like liver dumplings and wine, two of his absolute favorite things. And one can only imagine Beethoven's reaction to that being less than charitable. It was not the kind of thing he would have taken lightly or quietly. But it appeared to have worked because he did get better. And the piece that we're talking about today, the 15th quartet, which is actually the 13th in order of writing, but we can't get too lost in those weeds because, as is so often the case with Beethoven, his creative timelines do not match the publication timelines. But anyways, the 15th quartet had as its central movement this hymn of thanksgiving, this Heiliger Danke gesang. And it is not only the centerpiece of the work, it takes up nearly half of its entire length. And that hymn of thanksgiving was personal. It had everything to do with him being quite thankful that he had survived his recent illness. You can imagine back in the 19th century, illnesses were probably a little bit more frightening than they are today. I realize what I'm saying, given the times we're in currently in 2021, but having gotten through this illness must have been a reason for gratitude for Beethoven. And it's the first piece on this program that celebrates gratitude in music, what your music directors, the Freistreet Street Quartet, refer to as an exploration of grief, gratitude, recovery, and transformation. All those things happen for Beethoven in this music. And we hear in the late quartets, Beethoven doing two things, experimenting with with musical thought that he hadn't dared try in the pieces that were dependent upon public popularity. At this point, he was writing for himself and some of the quartets he even told friends he didn't want to ever be played. They were really very personal, very inward things. But one also hears in this music with Beethoven, maybe a rehearsal of the arguments he intends to have with the gods when his days on earth are done. It's very serious very meaningful, very, very deep music and worthy of its status. The phrase that Beethoven applied to this movement was a holy song of thanksgiving, of a convalescent to the deity in the Lydian mode. That last bit refers to a musical scale, the Lydian scale. It's a seven tone scale with a raised fourth note and Interestingly enough, it has quite a bit of pop culture credibility, this Lydian mode. It's used to create the theme of The Simpsons, The Jetsons, music from John Williams' E.T. You know it when you hear it, even if you don't know what to call it. Beethoven's Heiliger Danka Gesang, a true hymn of Thanksgiving. We move next to the music of Brittany J. Green, American-born composer, and her bio highlights several things about her music-making that I find really fascinating. She talks in her bio about the intersections between sound, video, movement, and text. And she talks about questioning and redefining the relationships between those elements. And she talks about how her recent works are tools for sonic world-building, exploring the construction, displacement, and rupture of systems. I love those phrases. Part of this exploration for her, in fact, often this exploration for her involves the use of electronic sound mixed with acoustic instruments. It's a very important part of her music making. The piece that we'll hear in To Experience Life is from 2019, and it was written for the Splice Ensemble, a very aptly chosen word when dealing with the mixing of media. And this ensemble is a trumpet, percussion, and piano trio, and their mission in the music world is the cultivation of a canon of electroacoustic chamber music could there be a better match than the one between brittany green and this wonderful ensemble the point of this work is to explore the meaning of life to understand it to be grateful for it and several of the texts that brittany uses in the electronic portion of the experience ask this question define the question even if it doesn't truly define the answer And one of the most fascinating parts of the text for me is where Brittany lists out some very, very important numbers. I quote, the life expectancy for Homo sapiens on planet Earth is 69 years, meaning the average primate, that's us, has 828 months or 3,588 weeks, 25,185 days, 604,440 hours, or 36,266,400 36,266,400 minutes or or, 2,175,984,000 seconds to experience life. It is incredible to think of one's existence, one's span in these very finite, very concrete numbers. Now we move to the music of Brazilian-American composer Clarice Assad. I neglected to mention at the beginning that this concert comprises four composers, two male, two female, two living, two very much not. Clarice is the second of the two living composers, along with Brittany Green. And her bio speaks to her broad interests and broad creative capacities. And one of the most interesting things about it, though it doesn't have much to do with this particular work we'll hear on this concert, is this program she created called Voxploration the exploration of the voice in which which is a seminar she has created to teach spontaneous music creation using only the voice no instruments to actors dancers musicians and non-musicians alike it's a fascinating entry point for non-artists into the world of music making and i think spontaneity and improvisation has been an important part of clarice's personal voice for a long time this work that we'll hear on this performance Metamorphosi was written for Matthew Lippman. Matthew Lippman is an American violist and recording artist, and his Ascent was recorded in 2019. And for this work, he wanted to commission a new piece by Clarice Assad. He was anxious to dedicate this work to the memory of his mother. And Clarice calls this a piece about change. Change from grief through acceptance, and finally to freedom. And she admits in an interview that she actually freaked out a little bit when approached about it. The responsibility of memorializing somebody's mother who had passed is big. And I think any of us would feel the weight of that burden. But Clarice was patient. She took her time. She spent the hours necessary to get to know Matthew, to understand his relationship with his mother. And during that process, lit upon this very interesting comparative natural experience that the butterfly has when it goes through its metamorphosis. The first part of it is grueling, painful, nearly fatal. But in the end, there is an incredible freedom, the freedom that can come only from flight. Clarice talks about this piece as being separated into two parts, two movements. The first part is an exploration of that loss and that grief, that deep sadness that comes from death. And the second part is flight, as in the butterfly, the freedom that comes from the loss of something very, very heavy. This is a very specific and personal kind of gratitude. And finally, we come to the music of Johannes Brahms. Though not explicitly about gratitude, I do think there is a way in in this sextet, sextet number two, to the theme, which I'll explain in a moment. First, though, we have to talk about Brahms as a composer and as a human. Brahms was deathly afraid of Beethoven's ghost, which he felt stalking behind him throughout the first decades of his compositional life. And he was so concerned about the standard that ghost had established in the various and important forms of music, namely the symphony and the string quartet, that he was reluctant until his 40s to even attempt to publish one. The good news for music lovers about this reluctance, though, is that Brahms wrote interesting, gorgeous, important music in other forms. And The String Sex is one of those. He wrote two, and they define the genre. This one was written in 1866. The first one had been written in 1860. And there's an interesting aspect of Brahms' life at the time. He had, between the first and the second, met a woman Agatha von Siebold, who was a soprano. And such was their relationship and love for one another that they actually secretly engaged. Brahms had infatuations throughout his life, often with singers. Agatha was the only one that he actually pledged to marry. The fact that they didn't says a lot about his unwillingness to let happiness enter his life in any real way at any point. But Agatha has this beautiful and sad quote from her diaries years later that says, "'I loved Johannes Brahms very much, and for a short time he loved me.'" And he did love her, there's no question about that. But their relationship happened at a time when he suffered an incredible loss professionally. His first piano concerto premiered around this time, and it was called Banal and Horrid by the critics. It was a huge blow for him. It was a very, very difficult moment. And years later, looking back, he admitted to not being able to imagine facing a wife after such a failure, and to have been comforted by one would have been unimaginable and unacceptable for him. It's a pretty selfish and, I think, short-sighted reason to leave a relationship, but for Brahms, the professional and the personal were never unlinked. During their courtship and engagement, Brahms loved to write songs for Agatha, and coded her name into them through a motive using the notes A, G, A, B, E. This is based on her name, A for A, G for G, A, H being the German for the note B, and E. There's no T in music, so he just conveniently left it out. And this is where our theme of gratitude comes back. His use of the motive in the songs is very romantic, very cheerful. But in the second sextet, I find it to be a little wistful. Almost a little bit regretful, but also thankful about what might have been, about what for a very short time was. It was perhaps this very wistfulness in the music that made the second sextet a slightly less popular premiere work than the first sextet, but none other than Clara Schumann, the greatest and truest love of Brahms's life and probably the reason it never would have worked with Agatha or anybody else. She said that this work, The Second Sextet, signaled a new day in Brahms's music. Perhaps she was saying, secretly, quietly, that he was ready to finally look upon Beethoven's legacy, not with fear, but with gratitude. I hope you enjoy this exploration of gratitude in music, and I can't wait to talk to you again next month. Nova has received generous support from the Utah Legislature and Utah Division of Arts and Museums, the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation, Salt Lake County Zoo Arts and Parks, George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation, Isotope, Salt Lake City Arts Council, the Cultural Vision Fund, Dominion Energy, Rocky Mountain Power Foundation, the Alice M. Ditson Fund of Columbia University, and the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music. Don't forget to subscribe and share the Nova podcast with your friends. Thanks for listening.